Welcome to the Minds of the Early Church podcast. This podcast seeks to understand and develop the way of thinking of the early church, especially its spiritual and intellectual insights, in order to guide us in our time. Developing this way of thinking in ourselves will also give us new ways of navigating a quickly changing world and will allow us to engage the modern world in a fresh, exciting, and authentic way. The Health of the Soul on Beauty, Goodness, and Truth In late 2019, an artist named Maurizio Catalan created three editions of a piece of art called Comedian that sold for $120,000 for the first and second edition, but the third was being negotiated for $150,000. To describe this work of art is fairly simple. It is exactly a banana duct-taped to a wall. In December, a man ate the edition at Art Basel, Miami Beach, Florida. While I'm not an art historian, I can be certain that this is the most expensive meal that I've ever heard of. Interestingly enough, the artwork was not the piece itself, but rather the concept of it. So they put up another banana duct taped to the wall. But it was later removed because of the crowds it attracted and the danger it posed to the other pieces in the gallery. The reporter in a video version of the story ends by saying, You're an artist, only if you get paid for it. And it is that statement that requires reflection, and we'll come back to it. If you found the story to be ridiculous, it is because you have an innate understanding of beauty and art, although your education may not have equipped you to be able to clearly express that understanding. I will say a few things about the nature of beauty. First, beauty is not in the eyes of the beholder. Second, beauty is often confused for physical attractiveness. Physical attractiveness is in the eyes of the beholder. If this is challenging, let's try a test. Bring people to a canyon with a river in its midst, or have them go up to the top of a mountain near the ocean and have them behold the ocean during sunset while there are partly cloudy skies. All people will agree that these things are beautiful. Ancient philosophies clearly articulated how beauty was objective. This includes early Christian philosophy because, after all, if beauty is a highly subjective term empty of any real value, what sense does it make to call God beautiful, or a poem for that matter, or a song? In the Dialogues of Plato, he describes beauty as a form That is, an immaterial reality, a pattern, that material realities imitate and embody. This objectivity and beauty appears in shape, form, color, consistency, symmetry, and repetition. This applies to things we can see and things we can hear. His student Aristotle associated beauty with ratio and mean, an idea we saw in the previous episode in his understanding of virtue as the mean between the two extremes of excess and deficiency of an action. Thus, beauty was not in the eyes of the beholder, but it was a manifestation of a pattern and a relation of parts in things we see and things we hear. Unlike Aristotle, Plato argued that the beauty we can apprehend in beautiful things 
points beyond the things themselves to an immaterial form that fills all things, which Plato called beauty itself. This beauty lifts us up to the realm of immaterial or spiritual things by stirring up desire or eros in us. When we see a beautiful mountain with snow capping it, we can see the characteristics of beauty in shape, form, color, consistency, symmetry, and repetition, and they are all available to our eyes at once. When we hear a symphony with smooth, clear harmonies, a repetition of certain melodies and rhythms, crescendos and decrescendos, we can hear the characteristics of beauty in form, symmetry, and repetition. The same is true when we hear a beautiful poem. Whether it uses rhyme, meter, alliteration, or parallelism, such as in the Psalms and biblical poetry, we apprehend form, symmetry, consistency, and repetition. If the poem uses metaphors and similes, then it activates shapes, colors, and visual symmetries that cause us to apprehend beauty. When we hear a powerful story, it not only has these characteristics, but reorients our vision to see these features in our lives, and even to imitate them, and thus we bring a measure of that beauty into the world in ourselves. When we observe nature, or rather the cosmos, as the early church referred to nature, when we see the cycles of nature, from the movements of the stars to the seasons, which are tied to the sun and earth, the day and night, the animal kingdom with hibernation and migration and bearing the new generations, the waves of the sea with the foam at the meeting with the beach and its alternating modes, the silence of the wilderness and the sounds in it, and likewise its alternating modes, the predictability of motherly behavior and care among the animals, the growth of animals, the conversations among parents and children, and the conversations between husbands and wives. We can apprehend the grand symphony that is the cosmos. We see the great works of art embedded within works of art. And thus, we see that art is an embodiment of beauty and its characteristics in the physical world. When the reporter in the video concludes his story about the banana taped to the wall, saying, You're an artist only if you get paid for it. I think he was being sarcastic. But the sad irony is he spoke the truth about what people think today because people can no longer understand beauty, and therefore they cannot understand art. Without any doubt, the apprehension of beauty causes pleasure. But even then, we have a confused idea of pleasure. We confuse the relieving of pain with pleasure. But that's relief, not pleasure. In Plato's dialogue titled Gorgias, Socrates addresses this mistake very effectively. Pleasure and pain are opposites. Opposites cannot be identical. If we drink water to relieve thirst, which is a type of pain, and we perceive pleasure in that, the pleasure immediately disappears when we have finished drinking the water. Therefore, what we call pleasure could not have been pleasure because it is identical to its opposite, which is impossible. Thus, we have forgotten the idea of pleasure, which the apprehension of beauty causes in us. When we enjoy beholding the sunset in a sky dotted with clouds, 
and we stop and look at it and take a photo of it. There is no pain it is relieving, but it is infusing us with something and stirring up desire in us for such things. Such pleasure is inexhaustible. We can never get tired of seeing such sunsets on a day-by-day basis. Thus, the ancients argued powerfully for the objectivity of beauty, and we applied their principles to the things around us and found that it makes sense of reality. Thus, beauty is not in the eyes of the beholder, but it is a manifestation of a pattern and relation of parts in things seen and things heard. This makes it objective. Further, the early Christians described God as beauty itself and the approach to God as beautiful. But beholding beauty can also change the behavior of someone. Saini from the Syrian, in one of his hymns on the Nativity, wrote, In the winter, when all creation is downcast, beauty shone out, giving joy to all created beings. Here Ephraim is describing God as beauty. But what that joy is that this beauty gives can be seen from another cycle of Ephraim's hymns, the hymns on faith, one in which he writes, Your beauty entices the hateful, so that they are scoured by it, since the one who is dirty cannot be united with you, unless he cleanses himself of stains. Your hyssop looks to pardon us with its compassion, and with the sprinkling of your compassion, Lord, we are cleansed. The Lord takes no delight in our hatred, but since he is very just, he adorns us with his beauty. From him on faith 12, 19 through 20. Ephraim thus sees beauty as stirring up eros in us, lifting us up to God, and in the process purifying us. He also describes this apprehension of and approach to God in terms of beauty in another hymn from the same cycle, this time using the imagery of vision and light. He says, Give thanks to the hidden light through the ray which is from it. It is difficult for the eye of the soul to see the secret light. Through the splendor which is from it, the eye can go near it. He sent a ray from himself to those sitting in darkness. He turned their eyes aside from the beauty which withers to the beauty of the one who sent him. From him on faith 5.18 The latter aspect about the beauty of God and how it corrects our mind to rise to that eternal beauty that underlies beauty in specific things is similar to a section from the Confessions of Augustine, where he reflects, Late have I loved you, O beauty, ever ancient, ever new. Late have I loved you. You were within me, but I was outside, and it was there that I searched for you. In my unloveliness, I plunged into the lovely things which you created. You were with me, but I was not with you. Created things kept me from you. Yet if they had not been in you, they would have not been at all. You called, you shouted, and you broke through my deafness. You flashed, you shone, and you dispelled my blindness. You breathed your fragrance on me. I drew in breath, and now I pant for you. I have tasted you, now I hunger and thirst for more. You touched me, and I burned for your peace. 
The apprehension of beauty itself is difficult at first. But then when one arrives to the beauty of God, a purification, or in Ephraim's words, a scouring, of our souls occurs, and a desire to remain in the presence of and have more of this beauty. This leads to joy. St. Basil the Great describes the soul as bearing the image of an archetype, which is the triune God himself. He also describes the ascent to God as a purification and a transformation, as exemplified by his homily on faith. He says, Once you have flown past all these things, and transcended the entire created order in your thoughts, and raised your intellect far beyond these, contemplate the divine nature, permanent, immutable, inalterable, impassable, simple, and composite, indivisible, unapproachable light, ineffable power, uncircumscribed greatness, supereminent glory, desirable goodness, extraordinary beauty that ravishes the soul pierced by it, but that cannot be worthily expressed in speech. Then he expounds further upon the purification and transformation that accompanies this ascent in his book on the Holy Spirit. He says, So after it was cleansed from the shame which tarnished it through wickedness, and after it returned to its natural beauty, and as it were restored the ancient form to its royal image by cleansing, only then can it draw near to Paraclete. Just like the sun, he will use the eye that has been cleansed to show you in himself the image of the invisible. And in the blessed vision of the image, you will see the unspeakable beauty of the archetype. Through this comes the ascent of hearts, the guidance of the weak, and the perfection of those making progress. The Spirit illuminates those who have been cleansed from every stain and makes them spiritual by means of communion with Himself. When a ray of light falls upon clear and translucent bodies, they are themselves filled with light and gleam with a light from themselves. Just so are the Spirit-bearing souls that are illuminated by the Holy Spirit. They are themselves made spiritual, and they send forth grace to others. His older sister, St. Macrina, who was highly influential on his life, says to her other brother, St. Gregory of Nyssa, in the Dialogue on the Soul and the Resurrection, beauty has in its own nature an attractiveness for everyone who looks at it. So if the soul becomes clean of all evil, it will exist entirely in beauty. The divine is beautiful by its own nature. The soul will be joined with the divine through its purity adhering to that which is proper to it. If this should happen, there will no longer be a need for the impulse of desire to lead us toward the beautiful. He who passes his life in darkness will desire the light. If he should come into the light, attainment will replace desire. The possibility of attainment makes desire useless and vain. Therefore, the soul will not receive any disadvantage in respect to participation in the good if it should be freed from these impulses. It will go back to itself and see clearly what is in its nature, and through its own beauty it will look upon the archetype as if in a mirror and an image. We can truly say that the accurate likeness of the divine consists in our soul's imitation of the superior nature. 
So between Western Syria, Cappadocia, and North Africa, across the 4th century, there was a clear consistency in the articulation of the teaching that God is beauty, and that our soul being created in his image is drawn to the archetypal beauty after which it was created. And in the ascent to God, it undergoes a process of purification before finally beholding God himself. That shows one side of the intimate relationship between beauty and goodness. But is there anything else further regarding the relationship between the two? Things that were beautiful to the eyes or to the ears have factored in the worship and expression of the church since the very beginning, even in the hardest of times or the most difficult of places. This is because art and music are like windows. Just as a beautiful house has windows showing you what is outside and where you are situated, the art and music of the church did the same. In the catacombs of Rome dating to the 2nd and 3rd centuries, you find icons and artwork. It was already difficult enough to get down there and worship, much less see. But there you have the art in the catacombs. In addition, you also find art in cave churches, and sometimes an overabundance of that. For example, in Karanlik Kilise in Garim, Turkey, which is also known as the Dark Church, you find some of the most vibrant iconography that has ever been produced in the church. This further supports the idea that beautiful things are essential to the expression and worship of the church. It is not just ornamentation, but it aids us in the ascent to God. But then you also see that ravishing beauty in the poetry of the church. If you read the hymns of St. Ephraim the Syrian or St. Jacob of Sarug, you will find yourself ascending to the heavens itself. But you will find such beauty converge magnificently in churches, in the architecture of the church. Some of the most beautiful churches you will ever see are those from the 6th century, such as the Basilica of San Apollinaire in Classe, or the Basilica of San Vitale in Ravenna, or Etchmiatsin Cathedral in Armenia, with its ornate work on its doors and arches, or the Red Monastery Church near Sohag, Egypt. I haven't even mentioned the medieval Gothic cathedrals. Beauty overflows in churches because they, in a way, recapitulate the beauty that fills nature. It recapitulates it in the light of Christ. Just like nature has seasons, the church does too. And these seasons are expressed in the vestments of the clergy, the tones of the hymns, and the themes of the liturgy, which focus on the life of Christ. Uniformity, on the other hand, is the enemy of beauty. Some would wish to see all churches have a standardized design, but this is due to a lack of understanding of what it means to be liturgical. The Russian Orthodox Church has recognized the diverse beauty of churches, and you can see it in the fact that most Russian churches are unique in their outward design. So with all this talk on beauty, where does goodness come in? Goodness can be described as moral beauty. If you remember from the last episode, Aristotle came up with a theory to describe virtue as the mean between two extremes of an action. For example, the act of giving has an extreme deficiency, which we call stinginess, and an extreme excess, which we call extravagance. 
But the mean between the two is the virtue of generosity. The mean has the characteristics of symmetry and consistency, which are the characteristics of beauty. The virtuous person is also reliably virtuous, that is, repetition, which is another characteristic of beauty. Goodness as moral beauty can be perceived. If I may give an analogy from sports, if you have ever seen Michael Jordan's style of playing and athleticism, there is something about it that elicited a response from viewers. He had symmetry, consistency, and was reliable, thus repetitive. Kobe Bryant's elegance in the game also elicited a similar response from audiences. Figure skaters like Evgenia Medvedeva, Alina Zagitova, also elicit such responses in their flawless skating. Thus, goodness as moral beauty can be perceived and recognized in the actions of a person and in the intentions they express and act upon, in short, how they carry their lives. It was this moral beauty that St. Gregory the Wonder Worker perceived and recognized in his teacher, Origen of Alexandria, and which moved him to pursue the same life of Christianity and philosophy. In his oration addressed to Origen, which he gave before he departed to his homeland to preach the gospel, he set about Origen, and thus, like some spark lighting upon our inmost soul, love was kindled and burst into flame within us. A love at once to the Holy Word, the most lovely object of all, who attracts all irresistibly toward himself by his unutterable beauty, and to this man, his friend and advocate. And being most mightily smitten by this love, I was persuaded to give up all those objects or pursuits which seemed to us befitting, and among others even my boasted jurisprudence, yea, my very fatherland and friends, both those who were present with me then and those from whom I had parted. And in my estimation there arose but one object dear and worth desire, to wit philosophy, and that master of philosophy, this inspired man. From chapter 6. Then later on in his oration he adds, But this admirable man, this friend and advocate of the virtues, has long ago done for us perhaps all that it lay in his power to do for us in making us lovers of virtue, who should love it with the most ardent affection. And by his own virtue he created in us a love at once for the beauty of righteousness, the golden face of which in truth was shown to us by him, and for prudence, which is worthy of being sought by all, and for the true wisdom, which is most delectable, and for temperance, the heavenly virtue which forms the sound constitution of the soul and brings peace to all who possess it, and for manliness, that most admirable grace, and for patience, that virtue peculiarly ours, and above all for piety, which men rightly designate when they call it the mother of the virtues, for this is the beginning and the end of all the virtues. From chapter 12. What we see here is the window that beauty provides. It reveals something more, something deeper, and something meaningful. But in goodness, that beauty lives dynamically in a person. Origin, like a window, pointed St. Gregory the Wonder Worker to the beauty of the Logos, 
and because he lived in imitation of the incarnate Logos, who is our Lord Jesus Christ. Origen himself became beautiful like the Logos, and he radiated that out to his disciples. So that is how beauty and goodness relate to one another. But how do beauty and goodness relate to truth? We can describe the relationship as a begetting. Beauty begets truth. What? What does that mean? Beauty is foundational for education because it creates a wonder for the things being studied in themselves. Those who experience the beauty of the universe engage or dialogue with it. In that dialogue, we discover the workings of the world and we learn about the world. That is truth. Thales, who is recognized as the first Greek philosopher, fell into a well at night because he was in awe looking at the stars in the night sky and was no longer paying attention to the walking. The masses made fun of him for being absent-minded, but those who sought after wisdom held him in high regard over this. Later, based on his engagement with the stars, he was able to accurately predict a solar eclipse because of his observations of the awe-inspiring night sky. He discovered the rhythm of the heavens. But something deeper is going on here. In Christian theology, Christ is the Logos incarnate. The Logos, or reason, as the word means in Greek, is the faculty that allows us to reason and understand the world. Since God fills the world, the Logos is present everywhere. But the Church Fathers distinguished between two Logoi. There is the perfect Logos, who is Christ himself, and then there is the seminal Logos, or the seed Logos, which has been implanted through the whole of creation. We, since we are created in the image of God, have the seminal Logos living in our rational souls, that is, our minds. Thus, we are filled with wonder at the creation and seek to engage with it. We are drawn to it through Eros, if you remember from my previous article and episode on Eros and Agape. And thus, since the creation is filled with the Logos, and our minds are created in the image of the perfect Logos, we can engage with the creation. We are created to engage with it, understand it, take care of it, and develop it. Ultimately, we lift it back up to God and praise Him for His works. As seen from the cycle of wonder culminating in understanding and praise, our purpose becomes evident to know the creation and to praise the Lord of creation. Note that this is just a very small aspect of the teaching of the seminal Logos and the perfect Logos, as it was articulated by the Church Fathers. But suffice it to say that St. Justin Martyr, who first articulated this teaching in detail, said, He was and is the Logos who is in every person, from the Second Apology, chapter 10. And for this reason, he continued saying about all humans, whether Christian or non-Christian, for each of them seeing, through his participation of the seminal divine Logos, what was related to it spoke very well. But they, who contradict themselves in important matters, evidently did not acquire the unseen, that is, heavenly wisdom, and the indisputable knowledge. The truths which men in all lands have rightly spoke belong to us Christians. For we worship and love after God the Father, the Logos who is from the unbegotten and ineffable God, 
since he even became man for us, so that by sharing our suffering, he also might heal us. Indeed, all writers, by means of the engrafted seed of the word, which was implanted in them, had a glimpse of the truth. For the seed of something and its imitation, given in proportion to one's capacity, is one thing, but the thing itself, which is shared and imitated according to his grace, is quite another. From the Second Apology, Chapter 13. It is for this reason that the early Christians regularly engaged philosophy since the apostles themselves, because there were many things that the philosophers correctly perceived, understood, and explained. This was fertile ground on which to sow the seed of the gospel. Then the things the philosophers understood in part, the Christians illuminated with the revelation Christ brought into the world. Then the things that the philosophers had only perceived in part, the Christians developed further, such as the anthropology of Plato, or the relation between the aspects of love known as Eros and Agape, or the idea of virtue in Aristotle, or the apathia of the Stoics. This may sound new to many of you all, but this is actually the ancient teaching of the Church. Its origin is embedded in the very word logos that the Apostle John uses in his Gospel. St. Clement of Alexandria, who lived in the late 2nd century and the following generation after St. Justin Martyr, described philosophy as a sort of covenant to the Greeks, similar to how prophecy was the covenant to the Israelites. In the book The Miscellanies, he says, Philosophy is not them false, though the thief and the liar speak truth through a transformation of operation, nor is sentence of condemnation to be pronounced ignorantly against what is said on account of him who says it, which also is to be kept in view in the case of those who are now alleged to prophesy. But what is said must be looked at to see if it keep by the truth. And in general terms, we shall not err in alleging that all things necessary and profitable for life came to us from God, and that philosophy more especially was given to the Greeks as a covenant peculiar to them, being as it is a stepping stone to the philosophy which is according to Christ. Although those who applied themselves to the philosophy of the Greeks shut their ears voluntarily to the truth, despising the voice of barbarians, or also dreading the danger suspended over the believer by the laws of the state. And as in the barbarian philosophy, so also in the Hellenic tares were sown by the proper husbandmen of the tares. Whence also heresies grew up among us along with the productive wheat. And those who in the Hellenic philosophy preached the impiety and voluptuousness of Epicurus, and whatever other tenets that are disseminated contrary to right reason, exist among the Greeks as spurious fruits of the divinely bestowed husbandry. From the Miscellanies, chapter 8. How is this so? Because at the very foundation of philosophy is the ability to define a concept or thing, then to divide that concept or thing into species, then to synthesize, that is to integrate it with other knowledge and build a systematic understanding of reality. This is called dialectic, it is the basis of logic. This dialectic often provides the way for people to accept Christ and believe in the gospel, or at the very least for those who have already believed, to work out their faith and understanding and see the coherence in the Christian faith. Such dialectic 
manifests itself in dialogue. If we inculcate this understanding of beauty, goodness, and truth, and live it out in our lives and educate our children in it, then we will work wonders in our lives. In the Catholic Diocese of Marquette, Michigan, they educate children in such a way, which is called classical education. There are nine private schools, kind of like a Catholic school district. Their bishop had had one of their schools pilot a classical education model and let it play out for years. And what the school saw caused them to move all of the other eight schools to a classical education model beginning in the 2020-2021 school year. One of the teachers in the school showed how beauty, goodness, and truth are integrated in such a way when she reflected that, for instance, I may begin the year with a unit on creation that will include the history of the earth, the Bible creation story, scientific study of the planets, rocks, soils, and plants. She said, I integrate math into the unit by focusing on geometric patterns, line, and symmetry in nature, which leads nicely into artwork of creation, plants, animals, geometric shapes, and models of the solar system, she added, elaborating even further on how such lessons also lead to writing composition and even poetry. You can read that article on the National Catholic Register. It's titled, New Trend Implementing a Classical Catholic Curriculum by Victoria R. Lefebvre, August 17th, 2020. That is education done correctly because it develops the soul and inculcates eros, wonder, and appreciation and stirs up the soul to praise God for his wondrous works. So what's the end of all this discussion? Let's put it this way. Imagine your child at 22 years old. Are you pleased when you see them? Do they appreciate the finer things in life? Do they see the beauty of the world and through that beauty, God? Are they beautiful in their souls? Do they have strong relationships? Are they intelligent? Or are you displeased with them and have to step in and give input or make most of their decisions for them? Are you going to raise them until you're dead? There is no commandment that says thou shalt raise them until you're dead. Rather, the Bible is clear about the duty of a parent to inculcate wisdom, justice, and judgment in a child. If you have to keep working with them and raising them when they are 22, then you failed. I think there is nothing more terrifying in the world than a parent being in this predicament. Such a parent was St. Monica, the mother of St. Augustine. By 22, he thought that the Bible was incredibly bad literature. He did not believe in Christianity. He belonged to a heretic sect called the Manichaeans. He had a mistress with whom he had a five-year-old son. He had bad relationships and was not successful in life. He was intelligent, though, but hopelessly and frustratingly confused, first for himself and also for his mother. She wept often over his predicament and prayed for him and asked others to pray for him. Through a very long spiritual journey, at around 30 or 31 years of age, he began to approach Christianity as a serious and intelligent religion. Sometime before his 32nd birthday, already having become a Christian, 
He retreated with his mother, his son, his brother, his friends, and his students to an estate of one of his friends to spend the late summer through the following spring of the years 386 and 387. At that time, he thoughtfully and rigorously sought to understand the difficult questions of whether we can know truth, and is there order in the world, and what is the relationship of God's order and the evil we see in the world, and what is the nature of the soul. If you notice, these are questions that bear on whether one can accept Christianity or not. He discussed these questions with his companions, including his mother. In the middle of one of these discussions, which can be found in his book The Happy Life, seeing how he was using his intelligence to understand Christianity, and seeing how it made sense of the world and not only grasping it, but leading his companions to Christianity, his mother smiles. He, along with his companions, were baptized on Easter that spring. St. Monica did not live much longer after that. Would you like to be as frustrated and grieved as she was for 14 years, and then to live a few months or a year after you see your children have finally gone right, if you even get that opportunity? Or would you like to smile as you see them growing up and to rejoice when they are in their early adulthood and rejoice for the rest of your life? I would take the latter option. The classical education model helps you in forming souls, whether of your children or even of adults, to grasp and integrate beauty, goodness, and truth. But why has the West gotten to such a sorry state in terms of education? It's because the issue with the way the West has developed is that it has either focused on truth or goodness or beauty in a fragmented way, rather than integrating the three. Those who focus on beauty itself become the emotionally unstable artists of society. Those who focus on goodness by itself become moralists without any connection to a deeper reality as to why we should be good. They become frustrated, and often fanatics. Those who focus on truth by itself become harsh and rigid, and often disregard others' circumstances and feelings. Truth becomes a self-absorbed endeavor instead of a light that clarifies everything. They become stones, thinking they are better than other people. But when we are formed to integrate the three, then beauty leads to wonder, which then leads to reverence, and then goodness, and then that order leads to truth. But how do we begin to do this? That is the topic of the next episode titled Formation on Reading and Literature. Thank you for listening. If you found this episode to be beneficial or interesting, please subscribe to my podcast and share it with your friends and family. You can also visit my website, danielhannawriter.com, where I have written articles and a list of recommended books, including much of what I mention on my podcast. I have also written on many different aspects of the Christian faith, from the Bible to spirituality to apologetics, book reviews, dialogues, patristics, and philosophy.